In Nairobi, who's behind it and could it happen in Britain? Is Iran coming in from the cold? Labour insists it wants to be the political party of the armed forces. And soldiers are warned to beware of taking gym supplements, which could lead to the end of their army career. If you fail a CDT, the default setting is discharged. Seven people are now known to have died following the four-day siege at the Westgate shopping complex in Nairobi. The Islamist group Al-Shabaab said it carried out the attack in retaliation for Kenyan army operations in Somalia. About 4,000 Kenyan troops have been serving in the south of Somalia since October 2011 as part of an African Union force supporting Somali government forces. Well, I'm joined by BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hello, Christopher. Um, first of all, tell us a bit about Britain relationship with Kenya? It's colonial. It starts with Britain's, if you like, East Africa from the 1900s onwards. And East Africa meant Kenya was very much part of it. Um, if you go back, to, go back to the 1950s, Britain was in the, the colonial power and it was at war, a terrorist war with the Kikuyu. And the man that was led the Kikuyu was thrown in jail was the ancestor of the present president, and that was Joma Kenyatta. And so there is this conflict incident right the way through Britain's relationship. Now, enormously good relationship, big training ground for the, for the, for the, for the British Army and a few other armies, but certainly it started all off with the Royal Engineers building bridges, the usual sort of thing. So very, very, very close. And also uh, the uh, Kenyans, uh, British staff colleges, not just, the, not just the Army staff college, but even the police staff colleges. So there's the British Army Training Unit in Kenya, you mentioned there. That, that's a long way from what happened, isn't it, uh, in, in Nairobi? Yeah, it is a long way. But if I was a soldier going there, say an engineer, I'd be looking at these headlines now. I'd be saying, well, hang on, what about my training deployment? Because it's not just training the British Army, it's also training the Kenyans. But, you know, what am I going to be doing? Is, is that going to fall apart? Is it going to be delayed? The answer is no, it's not going to fall apart. It's not going to be delayed, but the security rating would be that much higher. Let's just talk about this attack. Why was a shopping centre in Nairobi the target? Well, um, it wasn't a casual target. That's the first thing that's emerging from this. It could be, in fact, that the, uh, the team that did this had actually rented part of the, the shopping precinct at a store there because if you look at what, uh, w what weapons they were using, some of them were big weapons. You know, they, some of them were, were machine guns, etc. Uh, there were IEDs uh, involved in this, and so they must have had somewhere to store them. The answer is they probably took him in earlier. Um, you can go for that because it's an easy target. The other thing is that uh, Al-Shabaab uh, uh, can just wander around through Kenya and just mix in with a normal visitor a stance. That was a target because they don't like the Kenyans. The Kenyans brought 2,000 troops in there. They didn't like that. Well, the Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab, which has claimed responsibility for the attack on the shopping centre, is a powerful force in southern Somalia. The BBC's Mark Doyle is the only foreign journalist in the city of Kismayo inside Al-Shabaab territory. He's on patrol with British-trained African forces. A little earlier, we spoke to Mark and asked him what he's been doing. I'm at, um, a, I suppose you'd describe it as a forward operating base, but on the front line uh, with the African Union troops, uh, troops in fact from Sierra Leone. Um, who spent the last 10 years since the end of their war being trained by the British Army. 
Um, and I'm with the Sierra Leoneans now. It's uh, just north of um, Kismayo. Um, and uh, just been out on patrol with them. They uh, found uh, a cave, which is a place they thought uh, the Al-Shabaab had been using mortar, uh, had a mortar position. Um, they didn't see any direct evidence of mortar, but they, they think that it probably was a place where they had um, uh, fired at them from um, and then used the cave to hide in. Uh, and uh, I've been out on patrol with them on a couple of other occasions as well, uh, uh, so that they're... Um, I'm not a military man, but they're probing the places in front of their defences um, so that uh, they know what's going on. Um, and um, they encountered a few civilians along the way, um, no problem at all. Uh, they also encountered large uh, troops of uh, camel and uh, sheep. And um, the soldiers told me that they, sometimes the herders are used as spies. So uh, if they're worried at all, they ask them to move away with their sheep and their camels. But on this occasion, uh, there was no problem. They, they fired into the cave and um, cleared it and made sure there was none in it. Mark, I was listening to, to your reports earlier this week, and it does sound like there's very much a cat and mouse going on in the game going on in this area. Just describe who's in control and what's happening on a daily basis. I think it's fair to say that on the edges of the African Union control, it is cat and mouse because the African Union have uh, limited troops. They have um, taken control um, firmly of the capital Mogadishu. That happened a couple of years ago. Uh, they've now taken control of the port city of Kismayo, which is much further south towards the border with Kenya. That happened about a year ago. But on the edges of those um, strong points, if you like, uh, they do have uh, many problems because uh, Al-Shabaab control, or at least have strategic points uh, throughout the countryside. They, they, they really uh, can roam relatively freely, freely in most of South and Central Somalia. Uh, Al-Shabaab are by far the largest and most powerful military force here, much more powerful than the uh, very weak government army, which is a hodgepodge of um, different uh, armed groups, more than the different clan leaders. And Mark, you've met locals. What have they said to you about Al-Shabaab? Well, most of the locals that I've met, and all, almost all of the locals that I've met, apart from one or two when I was on, um, went into the Al-Shabaab area, across the front line a couple of times, all, almost all of them have been in the government-held areas, and they're very <coughs> fearful of Al-Shabaab. Uh, they say that uh, they try and control their activities, they don't let them farm, and when they do farm, they have to give half of their crops to Shabaab. They don't let their uh, girl children go to school, um, they, they fear them. Um, but I, I, I have to say, they, they do also fear the government forces, who, as I say, are a bit of a hotspot of different um, clan groups. Um, and uh, it was about 2006-07 when there was a, a, an Islamic government in Mogadishu, which was related to al-Shabaab and was the precursor of al-Shabaab. And that government itself was considered to be relatively um, efficient compared with previous governments. And, uh, and it was only when that government was kicked out by Ethiopian troops secretly backed, well, not so secretly now, because everyone knows, by the United States, um, that everything became um, much more radicalised and al-Shabaab took to uh, guerrilla tactics. Um, and um, many people um, will um, you know, historically date al-Shabaab's radicalisation to that um, treatment by Ethiopia and the US of, of a relatively moderate government. Christopher, just tell us a bit more about al-Shabaab, exactly what they want. Um, what they want is the control, but not just in not just in uh, Somalia. I mean, when you listen to what they say, they see this as a, almost as a worldwide 
um, uh, idea that you, you just don't concentrate in one area. Mark, just a very quick one. You're with the Sierra Leones, aren't you, at the moment? Uh, as part of the African Union force, different part of Africa, different attitude, but also, if not necessarily British... Uh, trained, but very much tr- British influenced, aren't they? The way they operate, does that work well? Well, they are. They are. They're absolutely British trained. I mean, when the British Army intervened in um, uh, the Sierra Leone War in May 2005, um, the the army, the, the British, basically um, routed the rebels with the help of a bit of help from um, uh, Nigerians and other. The British were absolutely um, key to it. The United Nations then followed up and consolidated this. Um, and the, the British introduced a, um, a military training team in Sierra Leone called uh, IMAT, the International Military Assistance and Training Team. Um, and for the last 10 years, they, they have absolutely been training the Sierra Leone Army. And the Sierra Leone Army now, uh, when the officers um, brief their troops, it's all gentlemen this, gentlemen that. And I mean, it just sounds with a slightly different accent, exactly like a young captain in Britain would be briefing his troops. Um, and so they, they, they absolutely are completely British trained. And now, I, I must say, I feel completely secure with them. I've been out in some quite dangerous places with the Sierra Leoneans, and um, I, I feel that they definitely would protect me if anything you know, horrible happened. That was the BBC's Mark Doyle speaking to us from Somalia. Well, let's talk to Patrick Smith, the editor-in-chief of Africa Confidential, who is at the UN General Assembly in New York, where 193 states are meeting to discuss global global issues. Uh, Patrick, good to speak to you today. Africa and events in Somalia and Kenya will be high on the agenda there. Absolutely. Um, there have been the expected expressions of solidarity with the Kenyan people after these uh, horrendous attacks. And um, the UN uh, envoy to Somalia, Nicholas Kay, has called for uh, a reinforcement of the African Union uh, mission in Somalia, which is uh, engaged in fighting uh, al-Shabaab within, the, within Somalia. And there have been also calls for uh, greater regional uh, security and coordination, uh, such as uh, ways to cut off the financing for al-Shabaab. So it, it's been um, uh, one of the main uh, points of discussion in the General Assembly meeting so far. And Al-Shabaab have been threatening some sort of attack on Kenya for some time. Did this surprise you? No, I, I, th- I think um, a lot of uh, the security experts in the region were saying the surprising thing about it was that it took so long for them to organise. Um, Kenya's intervention in Somalia started almost two years ago in October 2011. And from the beginning, al-Shabaab said, if you come into Somalia to fight us, we are going to come to Kenya and fight you, and we will fight. So why do you think it took so long? Um, I I think because al-Shabaab were extremely engaged in fighting off Kenyan (laughs) forces and the other African Union forces in their own territory in Somalia. Um, It seems now, because... Strategically, at least, they're on the back foot. They've lost uh, control of the capital of Mogadishu and the main port of Kismayo and, and the money-making uh, opportunities that go with that. They, they're, now, they're now taking a new strategy, which is, is this uh, attempt at organizing regional terrorist attacks. Christopher, lots of people are making links between al-Shabaab and al-Qaeda. Are they right to do that, and how far does that go? You're right to do it in as much that um, al-Shabaab says... Okay, we have an allegiance with Al Qaeda, but this is not. Must be careful. This is not an Al Qaeda 
operation and not an al-Qaeda attack. This is strictly al-Shabaab. And so... So is an al-Shabaab attack which might have had the expertise of al-Qaeda helping in the background? Well, it may have had the it may have had the expertise. We don't really know that yet, but I, I tell you what's interesting, and Patrick probably up can answer this better than I can, but one gets the impression that if you like, outside Islamic radicals were involved in the planning and maybe even the execution of this attack. And yes, it took two years to organise or a year to organise, but outsiders or people that are not necessarily normally fighting in the regions of Somalia. And so that doesn't necessarily again mean it's al-Qaeda. Let's beware of that. It's not al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda is, the, if you like, is the management group. But this is very much uh, al-Shabaab operation and it's now an operation for them in 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 that region rather than simply in somalia patrick um did you think this kind of attack could be repeated that could cause some kind of uh, copycat attack in the uk i don't i don't think there's a direct connection i mean people are making um, a lot of fuss about the fact that some some of the attackers have allegedly got U.S. and U.K. citizenship uh, and other citizenship from other European countries, um, but you know, probably twenty or thirty people at least involved in in, in this attack. Um, I, no, I, I don't see a direct correlation. I think the the real concern of the British uh, security author, uh, agencies was for some sort of grand slam uh, around the time of the Olympics, and that's when Britain got very engaged in the Somali uh, issue with the conferences and so forth. Um, I, I think uh, the power of al-Shabaab is, is within the region. I, I can see Christopher dying to get in here and say something. Yeah, Patrick, I'm, I'm a, I wouldn't suggest that the whole thing is, could, could, the, could the revolution, could, the, uh, could some form of attack come to the streets of London, for example, but talking to MI6, MI5, a couple of guys at GCHQ, and also on, on, on the JEC, the uh, Joint Intelligence Committee, they are saying they're working 24-7, uh, checking out groups to see if they can make any connections with this. You see, the, the, the concern, the great concern, is that there are two guys, perhaps, disaffected, uh, sitting in a back bedroom in Romford, who say, hey, let's get an away day to Woolwich. Let's go and do that one again. As a result of this, it's the inspiration, not the fact that inspiration would come directly from Somalia, but it would be an example to say, we want to do something as well. Patrick? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, certainly. I mean, I, I, I think... You you know, it's looking at the way these organizations work. Someone said this, you know, the strategic coordination, which presumes some sort of overarching international organization. I don't think that exists. But what there is, is the sort of tactical cooperation. You see that these uh, extremist groups feed on each other, both within regions like East Africa and even along that sort of belt across the Sahel to, to West Africa. And I think, as, as Christopher said, you can, you can see the same sort of effects in, uh, in, in the West. So one extremist group may well say, right, uh, this is an injustice against us all. You know, they're killing uh, Muslim children in, uh, in, in Somalia or, or some, some belief comes up like that. And then people react on the strength of that. And so that's why these attacks and the propaganda and the social media activity and everything around it creates a sort of propaganda point and, uh, and so forth and increases the political effect of it. And that's part of, that's part of the danger. Um, but I, th I think the way the Kenyan authorities have reacted and the Kenyan people, more, more importantly, in, in terms of 
expressing their solidarity and their unity as, as a people against this and, uh, and their desire not to be uh, divided by these sorts of attacks. I think it's a very, very important uh, oh. development in the, in the story. All right, Patrick Smith, Editor-in-Chief of Africa Confidential, thanks for joining us today. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, the Labour Party says it's going to be the political party of the armed forces. And soldiers are warned to read the labels of fitness supplements. They could contain a substance banned by the army. The new Iranian president, Hassan Rouhani, has said he hopes to resolve Iran's nuclear dispute, dispute with Western powers within three to six months. Mr Rouhani said Iran was prepared to be transparent to reassure the world it was not seeking nuclear weapons. He was speaking to American media in New York ahead of unprecedented talks on the nuclear issue later today. Uh, Christopher, what's the reason for Iran's urgency on this? Uh, well, to start, I'm, I'm not sure it's an, an urgency, but, you know, they want to move it three forward. Three to six months. This is quite a, quite a statement, isn't it, though? Yeah, but these are the pressures that have been put on them by Israel, who's saying, look, do something, otherwise we're going to zap you. I mean, that's the crude way of putting it, but that's more or less it. The Americans who are saying, well, come on, the, the, these, uh, the economic difficulties that you are under as a new regime in, in Iran, that you want to actually get out of this with our cooperation, uh, they are destroying you economically and therefore your support. The other thing is... You go to the United Nations Security Council, a special uh, 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 meeting of it this, uh, this time. One, you only go once a year. The last guy who was there was Ahmadinejad. The Iranian uh, government wants to put the image of Ahmadinejad far behind them. They, this is the one opportunity they will have of starting fresh. And also, they're now going into a new phase of their nuclear uh, development and also they want to get the United Nations uh, International Atomic Energy Agency in 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 uh, Vienna they want to get them on board so when they say we want to do inspections they have greater control of what they do rather than just to be see recalcitrant this is a new beginning but we've seen new beginnings before Senior Labour figures have told their party conference that voting against intervention in Syria doesn't mean they wouldn't be prepared to send British troops into conflict elsewhere if it was the right thing to do. Also at the event in Brighton, the Shadow Defence Secretary revealed he wants a specific law against attacking a member of the armed forces. BFPS reporter James Hurst spoke to Jim Murphy and asked whether his party played politics before the vote on Syria. I don't think we did. And you're right in saying, however, that it was a really important matter for the world with all those, what, 7,000 Syrian children lost their lives in this conflict so far. So it's like probably the gravest crisis facing the world today. But the Prime Minister lost the vote because the Prime Minister didn't make a coherent argument. And the Prime Minister couldn't even get his own MPs there. If he'd, if he'd organised the vote properly, he would have won the vote. And if you can't organise to get your cabinet ministers out of locked soundproof cupboards in the House of Commons, then it's pretty incompetent. But that sells to people like playing politics rather than doing the right thing. No, we set out to do the right thing. We wanted clear evidence, we wanted a clear UN process, and we wanted an assessment of what UK military involvement, the impact of that would be in the region. Those were the right stringent tests. Before we then have a subsequent vote, of course, and perhaps in just a few days afterwards, on military action. But... The Prime Minister handled it poorly. That's not the reason why we voted the way we did. But he then, apparently in a fit of pique, took it off the table. Now, that was his decision. That was his kind of instinct to do it in that way, and therefore we wouldn't be involved 
in military action, but we weren't playing politics. I'm, not, I'm genuinely not interested in playing politics. And I know some of your viewers will say, yeah, a politician saying that. It's absolutely true. I mean, it's about doing the right thing, and the right thing was stringent tests and then another vote in Parliament. You've said if it's the right thing in future, Britain should be prepared to intervene again. Let's take an example of if you were Defence Secretary in 2015 and an independent Afghanistan, its security forces were getting into really deep trouble. Would you be prepared if it was the right thing to send British forces back to Afghanistan? I don't want to speculate about an individual country, of course, and I think you would understand that and your viewers would understand that, but it's very clear that the Labour Party, through our history, has been a party that's been willing to stand up for what we believe here at home and abroad. And when our interests and our values are jeopardised and where we see people in, in need of support, um, it's been right on occasion to intervene. Now, that's an instinct that will remain with us, is with us in opposition, and it will keep retain it when we, when we get into government in 2015. But it's always the toughest decision. It'll always be controversial, and we have to learn the lessons, or right, learn the lessons of Afghanistan, try and prevent a conflict from happening, and through diplomacy and development policy, and the last resort, rely upon our military and defence. So, fast forward two years, being defence secretary. I want to support our forces and their families in the hope that we don't have to place them in harm's way by knowing that that gravest decision of last resort is sometimes unavoidable. Well, fast forward two years, as he put it, and should Jim Murphy be the Defence Secretary, he's also pledged to make Labour the party of the armed forces. He wants a new Bill of Rights to beef up the armed forces covenant and to make attacking troops a specific criminal offence. So, Christopher, not exactly vote-winning policies, but would they make any difference to the armed forces? None whatsoever. I mean, the idea that you'd have a, a specific criminal offence if you attack a soldier, you've got one. It's called murder. You know, and you get nicked for it. Mm. So, I mean, it, it's not going any further. It would be the same legislation. It's a, it's, a, it's a nice idea. Friends of the armed forces, ever since 1968 and Dennis Healy, when he was Defence Secretary, Labour has been the friend of the armed forces. And one of that, re one reason is because of the industrial side of it. They don't want to close down industrial companies, in other words, put people out of, out of work. The other thing is, the big issue will be, at the election, we'll be out of Afghanistan... What are you going to do with the money you save by being out of Afghanistan when you've got the big issues are education, law and order and hospitals. Public might actually want to say, give us some of that money back. So that for the first time, I suspect that it could be an issue, but not a major issue, because defence has never been a deciding issue in any in any general election that I can think about. Just briefly, what do you expect to hear from the Conservative Party on defence? Well, basically that. Um, a promise of perhaps 1%. Uh, increase in real terms but on defence equipment but nothing more than that, I mean they can't because the big issue for the Tories isn't a big issue and that is do we replace Trident? Yes This is BFBS Sit the UK Anti-Doping Agency is warning how easy it is to accidentally take a substance banned by World Sport and the British Army. It comes as 18 soldiers from the same unit face an uncertain fate for failing a doping test. It's widely reported they took the banned substance ephedrine without realising as part of a gym supplement. Will Inglis reports on the risks of using supplements to bulk up. The gym is part of forces life for servicemen and women all over the world. But while building muscle tone can help with the day job, using muscle building or fat stripping supplements could mean you fall foul of compulsory drug testing and the same strict rules enforced by UK anti-doping. 
The head of education and athlete support, Amanda Batt, told me it is easy to unwittingly take a banned substance. It's really easy and actually it's a huge risk for athletes. Um, the majority of our cases actually are inadvertent and many of them are caused by the use of supplements. Nutrition is a key part of preparation for any kind of fitness work. And Staff Sergeant Damien Williams, who coaches the IntCore rugby side, warns there are no shortcuts. They all are not massive at the end of the day, and they, they, they'll take an easy route if they can, and they're, they're only seeing themselves off with it. They, they need to just get take advice from a conditioner or from the PT staff, and they'll get their nutrition right and they'll get their training right. They just don't need it. I spoke to the man in charge of the Army's compulsory drug testing programme and also Commandant of the Royal Army Physical Training Corps. Brigadier John Donnelly told me exactly what they test for. Compulsory drug testing is looking for those drugs that are illegal um, and are prescribed by the uh, Misuse of Drugs Act 1971 and any substances that are hazardous to the health of our, of our, our servicemen and women uh, and, and therefore that's our method of detecting them. He's a big believer in eating properly instead of taking supplements and told me that not knowing how something got into your system is no excuse that soldiers are expected to stick to the same standard of strict liability as athletes. You cannot have grey areas. You have to give soldiers certainty. They need to understand what the rules are. And our advice is quite clear. One, don't take supplements. Two, if you do feel you have to take supplements, take them from the Informed Sport website, which will give you the list of those supplements that will meet the, the standards that, that we would require of CDT. So if you fail your compulsory drug test because you've taken a supplement without taking those precautions, it's your own lookout then? Well, the policy is quite clear. If you fail a CDT, the default setting is discharge. Informed Sport is a website set up by a testing company to try to help elite athletes keep clean. And while any supplements are risky, UK Anti-Doping has this advice for anyone who really feels they have to take them. The Informed Sport programme actually batch tests supplement products and that gives some assurance. It can't completely minimise the risk, but it does give some assurance to athletes or users that the supplements at least haven't been contaminated and they don't contain the banned substances that they're able to test for. But that can't help with another risk. Counterfeit supplements bought perhaps as a bargain online. If they're fake, there's little chance they'll even contain what's listed on the label, let alone meet the anti-doping rules. Will English reporting there. Christopher, as Will said in his piece, fitness and bodybuilding, very much part of army life, but what about the other two services? It's not so much the other two services, but although, you know, they get into competitive sports and they're really keen to do as well, well especially into service uh, sports. But they're smaller services and they have a different lifestyle and therefore the army, you know, army boots on the ground, 45 pound on the back, etc. There is far more of that macho, uh, protein, sort of filled uh, soldier image that demands this sort of bodybuilding. Indeed. Um, let's just take a moment to look ahead and look at the busy week we're going to have, and we are having in defence. Oh yeah, today, for example, uh, the uh, the UN uh, chemical warfare inspectors are going back into Syria. In fact, uh, this time of the day, they'll probably just arrive back in Syria. Uh, the MOD. When the, we expecting to hear their results? We probably won't hear anything for about sort of three or four weeks yet, okay. and we won't get a conclusive thing on who actually used. Them. I mean, that's not their Never role. Never going to happen. Uh, well, it will happen in circumstantial, and it will happen from the intelligence community can do that. Uh, what else happening? Uh, Philip Hammond, the Defence Secretary, 
this afternoon saying to the top 100 companies, you better have 100 reservists on your books. That's an interesting thing to hear. It's a fascinating thing. And he's saying, you know, it's not just a question of doing the right thing for the country. You put 100 reservists on your books, you are getting better trained, better motivated people. And that's going back to an idea that was sort of put around. He's got a job on his hands, hasn't he? If he's having to say these things very vocally. He's not only got a job on his hands, the whole army of recruiting thing, you know, they want want another 15,000. And at the present rate, they're going. They're not. They're not going to get them. Okay. Anything else? I like this. The Americans have decided they're going to ban tattoos above the collar, so no neck tattoos in the services. Nothing on the arms and nothing below the knees. In other words, shorts. So if you're going to have tattoos in the American Army, Navy, or Air Force, they're going to be above short level. Just, just to basically. Look the part, or look not the part, look the part not as smart. Well. Uh, well, not you know, not on the private part, but you've got to you've, you've got to be very careful. Uh, you've got to have an image, and the Americans are very very aware that this tattoo stuff, which is now creeping up into the head, you know, short, you know, cr- slowly, mm, you know, number one with with tattoos all over it, they look like a bunch of hooligans, and they say we've got to stop that. Christopher, have you got a tattoo? I certainly would not be telling you if I had. We don't know each other that well. (laughs) Christopher, thank you very much. That's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our guests. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can tweet us at BFBS Sitrep. Remember, you can listen again to this week's programme on our website, bfbs.com slash sitrep. Sitrep is back at the same time next week, but for now, from me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening. Speak to you again same time next week. Bye-bye for now. Sport and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS.